Radio Mano Papachango. Welcome to another edition. This is Tangentially Speaking. I'm Dr. Christopher Ryan, but nobody calls me doctor except my mother, and she means it ironically. So there you go. Last week I uh, ranted a bit, uh, as I am wont to do, about uh, the injustice of the modern world, and particularly American policing. And I got a a very thoughtful uh, email from uh, a police officer who pointed out to me that um, I generalized and and I went back and listened to my rant and he's right. I said the cops a few times. The cops do this. The cops do that. They bust the black guys. They're unfair and so on. And uh, his point was that there are a lot of uh, police officers who are not racist either um, consciously or even subconsciously and that uh, – it was unfair of me to generalize. He's right. I'll read a little bit from his uh, email. He said, I'm a police officer and I take great offense to this generalized statement. Don't get me wrong. I'm not naive enough to think racism doesn't exist in the ranks of law enforcement. I know it does. I've seen it, etc. Uh, but to go and say that all police officers go out with this as their sole mission in life is flat out wrong. Okay, I didn't say it was their sole mission in life, but I get the point. Um, there are a lot of good cops. And, you know, in those moments of life when you really need some help, uh, you know, your car is rolled over into a ditch. Uh, Somebody's broken through a window and they're walking around in your apartment. Uh, You know, your cat's up a tree. Your girlfriend's missing. Just saw a gone girl last night, which is why that image is in my mind. Uh, A good police officer is uh, a wonderful and necessary presence. Um, So I don't mean to to offend the police officers who are doing the good job and who are there when we need them. Uh, That's a wonderful thing and, and well worthy of a great deal of respect. But as I said to my correspondent, um, What I'm railing against in my inarticulate way is a state that imprisons young black men at rates far beyond any other country on the planet. In fact, the United States imprisons everyone far beyond uh, any other country on the planet. I said to him, I'm reading from my email here, I'm against laws that disproportionately punish black and or poor boys for the same things white and or rich boys are doing. Uh, That's me. yeah, I'm against a system in which 99.5% of the time the grand juries decide on indictments, except when the DA is working to make sure no indictment comes back because the DA works with the police department. Now, this is a bullshit system. And I think uh, that's one of, even more than the institutionalized racism, I think it's calling attention to the fact that the justice system in this country is so corrupt on so many different levels that when you do have a misconduct situation against police officers, you've got a DA generally trying to get 
the police officer off because the DA has to work with the police and they need to have a, a productive and a mutually beneficial relationship with them. So the structure is what's fucked up. It's not about the individual people. It's about the structure. Um, and the point I made, uh, you know, we went back and forth a few times and, you know, I ultimately I think the most important point that I was trying to make to this guy was that the system is fucked up. And even if you're a really good person, if you're caught up in a bad system, you're going to end up doing bad shit. And that uh, is corrosive to the soul. You know, there are, um, you know, a lot of good, good soldiers, good men and women who do really fucked up things in bad wars. Any veteran of Vietnam can tell you about that. And that's one of the worst things about it. Then you wonder, how can I be a good person if I did that? Well, the fact is human beings get involved in systems and we participate in systems. As I've said before on this podcast and in things I've written, what makes human beings so powerful as a species is our ability to cooperate. And that cooperation takes on a life of its own. It becomes a sort of Frankenstein monster that gets loose. And we, things happen too fast and you don't have time to think about everything you're doing. Um, you know, and what I pointed out to, to my correspondent here who said, you know, I listen to you and Duncan and Joe and, you know, I love your shows and all that. And I said to him, you know, you know that Duncan, Joe and I aren't bad guys, Right. But every one of us would be in prison for life if we'd ever had the misfortune of running into police at the wrong time. Um, speaking, I don't mean to speak for anyone else, but I think it's safe to say that we've probably all had substance, substances in our possession at various times in our lives that under minimum mandatory sentencing guidelines would have resulted in life sentences, right? These are, sentence, these are substances that aren't addictive. We all know what we're talking about here. Um uh, and what? They're not addictive. They're not making money for any Mexican drug cartels. Uh, they're not even uh, toxic in terms of overdose and so on. And we'd be in prison for the rest of our lives if we happen to get caught with that stuff. Although we wouldn't, wouldn't probably because we're all white. We've all got access to lawyers and money and we'd get off uh, you know, on uh, short probation or community service or something. But if you don't have access to lawyers and money in the United States, uh, if you're black, if you're lower income, then you're fucked, right? There are guys in prison right now for selling mushrooms at a Grateful Dead show, right? We've all read about the undercover female cop who infiltrated a high school, befriended a boy with straight A's who didn't even get high, asked him to get her some weed, which he did probably because he thought he was finally going to get laid. And then they bust this kid. They ruin his life, right? There's a guy in his 80s in prison right now in Florida because he helped his wife die at her request. She had a terminal illness and he's in prison. What country is this we're living in? So what I was trying to get this guy to see, although in a way I don't even want him to see it because it's only going to be painful and fuck up his life if he does see this to the, to the depth that I do, is that the government of the United States is so out of touch with reality and so corrupted and run by such fuckheads 
who are insulated and isolated by the hundreds of millions of dollars that it costs for them to get into positions of power and hold on to those positions of power, that average common people in this country, even people like me who are in the upper, I don't know, 5% probably, see the government as dangerous and alien and often enemy because things can go wrong and we can get screwed. You've seen some of the guests I've had on this show, the Bruce Lisker, who's in prison for 26 years for killing his mother. He didn't kill her. The cops could clearly see he didn't kill her, but because of corruption, he sat for 26 years of his life in prison. Check the archives. Speaking of archives, uh, I'm, I apologize to those of you who have RSS feeds. You see more and more episodes popping up. That's because I'm pulling them out from behind this paywall that they, uh, they went behind when I moved to this new system. And every time I pull one out from behind the pay ro- paywall, it goes up on the RSS feed. So sorry for the, the clutter, but every time you see one, that means that one is now free. So if you haven't listened to it, now you can feel free to go back and check it out. Anyway, end of story with a police officer. I invited him to come on the show. Uh, obviously, he'd have to be anonymous. Um, he said he'd get back in touch. You know, but think about it. Isn't it strange that you'd have to be anonymous to even talk honestly, right? What's that say? That's kind of a weird a weird commentary on the situation in itself. But anyway, he seems like a really nice, smart guy. And I hope he does come on the show. I think that would be a really interesting conversation. So if you're listening, sir, you would be most welcome and be treated with utmost respect uh, if you do want to come on. I recognize that it would be risky for you in in ways I can't even really appreciate. So if you don't want to do it, I certainly respect that as well. I get interesting emails every week, every day um, from people who listen to this podcast. And as I've said before, I really appreciate them. And I'm sorry, I don't have a chance to to answer all of them, but uh, or even to to talk about them on the podcast. But another one I wanted to talk about that came in this week was um, really touching and and uh, might give you some perspective on the kinds of lives that we're all we're all living. Everybody's in a struggle. This is from uh, a person whose name also I'm not going to use, uh, who was raised as a Jehovah's Witness, and uh, which he describes as a cult. Um, he's a young guy in his in his late twenties. And uh, he talks about how listening to the podcast uh, and also John Duncan and Daniele and sort of opened his mind to things and started a process that has now ended with him saying uh, or deciding that um, he's he can't continue in this community. And the problem is that, as he says, as soon as I express my doubts outwardly, I may lose my family, I may lose all my friends because uh, Jehovah's Witnesses completely shun those who disagree with the doctrine or those who claim who uh, leave the faith, looking at them as mentally ill and or satanic. Um, so, you know, this this is a person looking at coming out um, in a way that in, in some senses is probably even more devastating on a personal level than coming out because of um, sexual orientation, at least if you come out as gay or trans, hopefully there's some people in your community that will support you. 
But this guy saying that there's nobody in that community that will support him, that, that even can support him. Um, but he says, um, I'm resolved not to waste the rest of my life, and I want to make an impact in this world for the better. So, uh, yeah, that's very moving. And, and I wish, wish you all the best if you're listening to this. And um, I suggested that he go to the, the Reddit, uh, the subreddit, which is tangentially speaking, altogether, no space. And uh, maybe he'd find some community there. I'm sure there are a lot of wonderful people who are listening to this and who uh, might be able to offer support, some support to this person, maybe even some uh, former Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, that would be wonderful if you would go to that subreddit, uh, tangentially speaking, all one word, uh, and um, offer this guy your support and maybe some some advice. That would be wonderful. Many thanks to all of you who write, encouraging me to to work on this book. Um, <laughs> a, a lot of the encouragement is of the write the fucking book, you idiot variety, which I appreciate, as that's the kind of encouragement I give to my friends as well. So just want to say thanks for that. I am working on it. I'm starting to make some serious headway. And uh, the first part is the hardest part. It's kind of like you know, I don't know. It's like uh, hiking the Appalachian Trail or something. You know, the first couple of weeks are the worst. That's when you get your blisters and your back hurts and, you know, you're getting rid of the shit you don't need from your backpack and you're sort of whittling down what you really do need and getting used to sleeping on the ground and all that. Uh, so uh, that's where I am. I'm getting I think I'm through that initial phase of, of writing now. I'm starting to get used to it. And uh and I'm starting to make some headway. And once once you get your direction, once you know where you're going and the story you're telling, then it's a lot easier because then it's linear. Uh, up till now, there's been a lot of, um, I feel like there have been some blind alleys and some you know, dead ends and I, I'm repeating things. And, oh, I already talked about that in this other part and I have to f- fit it together and – but once it gets linear, then uh, it's a lot better. So thank you for the encouragement. I really appreciate it. I can't tell you how privileged I feel that, you know, here I am writing a book and I've got people saying, write the book, I want to buy it. I mean, that is such a wonderful place to be. Uh, psychologically, it, it kind of adds to the pressure, I suppose, but who gives a shit? It's it's a wonderful place to be, and I really appreciate all the support that you guys are are sending. All right, this episode is with Andy Gurovich. It's his third. It's the the third time he's been on. Uh, We recorded this Friday night. It'll go up Monday morning, so just a few days ago. This one's fresh off the griddle, as they say. Um, I've got a bunch in the can, uh, but they're all sort of evergreen. So uh, I thought I'd just throw this one up since it's it's fresh. And uh, Andy's great, a real favorite. Everybody uh, always writes after, you know, and tweets and stuff how much they like Andy. So let's get Andy back up there. He's wonderful. He's my power podcast bottom, as he refers to himself. In this episode, uh, we talk about Indonesia. We talk about some some projects that Andy's working on now, uh, the literary scene in Portland. And most interestingly for me, we talk about Andy's mother and childhood. We've talked about his father, fascinating uh, aspect of Andy's childhood in the previous episodes. And this time we get to his mother, um, a mysterious, 
uh, difficult figure. Um, fascinating. I, I'm so sorry she's not alive. It would be so interesting to try to get her story, although, as you'll hear, she wasn't um, very eager to share it, not even with Andy, much less with you know someone like me. But at least we've got Andy, and we've got his story, which is fascinating. So uh, thank you to Basin and Range for that funky music we're using at the beginning. Thank you to Shore Design T-Shirts, as always. Check them out, shoredesignt-shirts.com. If you want to get some of the shirts we're selling at chrisryanphd.com, there's a 10% discount from now through Christmas Day. Use the code VIRGINBIRTH at checkout. You get 10% off the whole order. And uh, who else am I thanking? Danny Osment, who does the sound engineering. Not this week, because I'm throwing this one up before he'll get a chance. But in general, you can thank him for that. And uh, the great, the wonderful, the lovely Carsey Blanton for Smoke Alarm. I'm using the acoustic version now because I just love it so much. So at the end of the show, that's what you're listening to, Carsey Blanton. Now I am going to uh, play you in with some Indonesian music. This tune is called Egeulis, G-E-U-L-I-S. I'm not sure how that's pronounced, but it's by Sabah Habas Mustafa and the Jungala All-Stars. The album is uh, Sola Lee, which is also a beautiful song from that album. Uh, anyway, Gulis by Saba Habas Mustafa and the Jugala All Stars. Check out this funky Indonesian groove.
blustery Portland evening. The fucking trees are blowing over out there, man. Yeah, it's out of control. With uh, the great Andrew Gurevich. Is this your third? This is your third to visit. This is my third one as the, uh, uh, I guess, the uh, interrogee. Yeah. Your, your third uh, interrogee. <laughs> oh, we're going to talk about torture, are we? <laughs> yeah. I just posted three... Um, three blog pieces on psychology today about torture one of them giving this the psychology professor profession a bunch of shit because these two psychologists who made 80 million dollars yeah, saw this for giving cover to the fucking cia yeah no doctors would do it no no psychiatrists would do it you know so they got these two psychologists and $80 million. This is a story that just repeats itself. I mean, there's a, a lot that's been done about this, about how they did this with Ewan Cameron uh, at uh, McGill in uh, Canada. And I mean, that's what all that early, uh, all the early stuff they were doing with psychedelics was with him and wiping people's brains. And oh, right. <coughs> Isn't Acid it, Dreams is about that. It's amazing how they, you know... It, get their hands on something cool and mm -hmm. immediately start thinking of all the fucked up shit they can do with it, you know? Yeah, these fucking releases, though. I mean, I love when these reports come out. Hey, careful with your language there, Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Already, right? <laughs> no, sorry, we have sponsors? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, these were brought to you by the CIA. <laughs> but these controlled releases that, uh, you know, these reports come out and they tell us things we already know and then everyone acts shocked about them. I mean... yeah. Well, that was another one of my pieces was, uh, you know, it, it was basically, I think the subtitle was something like, you know, I, I don't even remember the fucking subtitle, but it was basically <laughs> like uh, I, I vacillate between being upset about this mm -hmm. and being dismayed that people think this is new. Right. We've been torturing people forever. As long as there's been in America, we've been torturing Indians, torturing black people, torturing, you know, everybody's... And then American foreign policy, give me a fucking break. Try to find a South American who doesn't know that the United States not only tortures people, but trains their soldiers and police in torturing techniques. School yeah, of the Americas. Yeah, and we didn't invent it either. I mean, the British have a long history of this. The Catholic Church has a long history right. of this. And this goes back, I mean, Romans did it, Greeks did it. And some dumbass out there is thinking, yeah, but the Indians scalped us. You know what? We taught the Indians how to scalp. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, whatever we is in this context. I mean, I for sure as fuck didn't teach anyone. You know, I'm working on a book about Indonesian art that we can talk about in a sec. I got this great no, opportunity we're not talk about <laughs> to write this book. And the guy that uh, is the collector of all this art, he, uh, part of these, uh, part of his collection are these shields. And they're, you know, implements of protection. And if there's a skirmish between two tribes... Um, and he's watched this several times. Uh, they all go get these shields, and he goes, you know, these things couldn't withstand a blow, right? I mean, if you actually hit one, <clears throat> you know, the thing would disintegrate, right? right. And they all run at each other um, from both tribes and uh, shaking the, the shields violently uh, to to conjure up the uh, evil spirits that will uh, make things difficult for the other side, right? And they so they just basically stand across from each other and shake these things at each other. And then uh, when one tribe gets tired of this, Right, they finally go. Okay, fuck it. You can have the tree with the coconuts or whatever, whatever it is that the skirmish is over. Right, they kind of just kind of acquiesce, and nobody right. loses a life. But it doesn't involve skinning anybody. Right, it doesn't involve tying somebody to a chair and telling them you're going to rape their children in front of them. It doesn't involve any of this kind of really dark shit. Yeah, comes out in these reports. So you're right. Yeah, it's reminiscent of counting coup among the Native American people. You know, mm -hmm. in that killing somebody was seen as. Uh, Something you would do if you weren't cool enough to count coup, which means like you ride up and touch your enemy 
wow. and get away with it. Yeah. And uh, that's the that's the honor. That's where you know that's where being a kick-ass Indian came in. That was my philosophy with women for the first like just thirty years of my life. Grope them and run just away, and touch them and run yeah, the other yeah, direction. That works really well. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I was counting coup, baby. Yeah, there's, there's okay, hey. Yeah, you look down on that in a few counties in Oregon, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So Indonesian art. What's going on with that? Oh, I missed your reading the other night. What was that about? Oh, that's cool, man. Yeah. So there's this guy in town named Sean Davis who wrote this amazing book called The Wax Bullet War, and he's an Iraq vet. And he also served in Katrina and in the uh, uh, in Jamaica, no, in Haiti. Excuse me, when there was the the ousting of Aristide there, and so the guy's seen a lot of a lot of horrible shit. And he is also a pretty prolific artist and an author. He's written a couple of uh, plays. Oh yeah, he wrote that. Uh, Oh, opera. That opera. <laughs> we'll just say that. No, no. Actually, let me take that back. The he libretto. just was in it. I've been blaming him of having written it. He just was in it. Oh. He was just in it. He just went and did a part in well, it. So we can, fair. yeah. So we can take away a bit of the blame for that. Although he, blame, I mean, <clears throat> I, I don't. I haven't spoken about it on the podcast. Mm-hmm. It was an opera about Viet, about uh, vets yeah. uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan. I went to see it. Uh, a friend of mine was involved with it in some way, and he suggested we should go see it. And I thought, hey, good night on the town with yeah. Casilda. Let's go to an opera. I haven't <laughs> yeah, done that right. for a while. Hi, uh, hi, town, uptown, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, it, you know, I, it's been so long since I've been to an opera that I actually forgot how much I hate opera. Right. Well, it's also Portland opera. Well, I don't know. I don't know enough about opera to know that Portland opera is worse than, you know, yeah, I don't really know either. Dubuque either. Opera, There's normally but... an Italian guy. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, uh, it did remind yeah. me how much I, I like Dan Savage once said to me, you're gay in everything except for your uh, sexual orientation and you, the fact that you don't like musicals. Wow. So I took that as a great compliment. Yeah, isn't it great when you have one of those moments? Yeah, yeah. A black person told me I had Negro tendencies the other day, and I felt like I had crossed some kind of threshold. <laughs> so this guy, Sean Davis, he, uh, you know, you wrote this amazing book about his experience in the war, and he's a he's a pro- uh, prolific author. He's published a lot of stuff in a lot of different areas. He's got a screenplay he's working on for the Sci-Fi Channel and a bunch of different shit. And uh, he's the head of the American Legion post uh, on Northeast Alberta. And he had this idea to do two things because you go to the Legion and it's just these old timers there just drinking two dollar beer, just basically waiting to die. And uh, and he thought, man, I could turn this into a place that that does two things. One actually services the needs of modern vets in a, in a better way. Um, and so he's doing fundraisers and all this other kind of shit. Um, but then he knows a lot of writers in town. Portland's got this really thriving literary scene. Um, with some people that are just doing amazing stuff uh, and, and with international recognition. I mean, Lydia Yuknovich is one of the best writers in town, Tom Spanbauer and the Dangerous Writers Group. Um, <coughs> excuse me, Chuck Palahniuk is from here and Monica Drake, um, uh, Cheryl Strayed, who the movie right. Wild, you know, she, you know, so there's a lot of great was writers. Is she originally from here or yeah. she settled here? Oh, okay. I wasn't yeah. sure about that. Um, well, I, know, I mean, she's been here you know 10 15 years or so i don't know if right. she's originally from here uh, but pretty entrenched in the in the local well, she's gonna scene. be moving uptown now yeah huh? exactly yeah i guess <laughs> she'll be going to more operas for sure <laughs> <laughs> but uh so sean thought you know i could turn this into kind of an underground literary spot where you know we start doing readings and i really like the vibe in the place because it's kind of a it's kind of like a i mean they're they're it's great it's got a little bar and it's like a little portland dive bar but it's an american legion 
and you got some of the best uh, writers in Portland on the stage, and then you look out in the crowd, and it's a mixture of like, uh, you know, current vets, uh, older vets, hippies, trans people. I mean, it's this really wild kind of scene that's developing that's cool. around it. So it's kind of turning into this real movement. And <clears throat> at a reading the other night, I was supposed to. Celeste and I were supposed to go to Seattle to see uh, Stevie Wonder. I saw uh, that. You you were hawking your tickets. Yeah, I was trying to sell my tickets. Yeah. I was using the interwebs. <laughs> Did anybody buy it? I was trying to shake your audience down. <laughs> no, well, I, I forwarded it on. I figure anyone in Seattle, man. Yeah, it worked out. I sold them for a little bit less than I bought them for, but oh, that was right. fine. Well, I didn't good. have to eat them, and I really yeah. wanted them to go. And it was actually, they went to a guy who, uh, uh, I think you said a friend of his was coming into town, and she was really stoked about it. And oh. it turns out she's a fan of the podcast. And oh, good. Good. Read a bunch of stuff and read some of the things I've written. So keeping it in the family, small world, yeah. So that went on. Well, right. next time you do a reading at this place, give me more than a few hours' notice, dude. Yeah, that like, was kind you, of a you problem. You think I'm just sitting around doing nothing all day? <laughs> yes, I that do. That would be accurate, but that particular day, I, I had something going on. Yeah, well, that sounds great. That uh, that's Portland's full of little places like that, like really cool little. Vo- uh, Cassie is doing a uh, hula hooping class. Oh, nice. <laughs> And she sort of like pulled muscles the other day. I'm like, really? You got a hula hoop injury? Seriously? Are you going to tell me that? (laughs) It goes well with her yachting injury. Uh, But uh, anyway, she's upstairs doing this hula hooping class in this this place. I forget what it's called. Some ballroom. There's something ballroom way up north of Alberta. And anyway, so downstairs there's a restaurant, pub, bar thing. And you can choose where your profit goes. It's a nonprofit, and they've got six charities up on the wall. And you pick, like, oh, yeah, I want my profit to go to the Leukemia Association. Wow. Or, yeah, it's like what a what a cool thing. And their 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 uh, motto is something like saving the world one pint at a time. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> the more I drink, the more no, I can exactly. devote. To- this is for you, poor people. <laughs> the Liver Foundation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's uh, called karma, immediate karma. Yeah, yeah. So you're writing. What's this book? You're writing about Indonesian yeah, so, art. Um, it's great. You know, the, I got uh, the Joseph Campbell Foundation. A guy named uh, Bob Walter, who's been the head of the Campbell Foundation, and he was Joseph Campbell's, uh, uh, you know, one of his closest friends. He was his editor um, and his publisher uh, for most of his works, and most of the stuff you see that comes out, Campbell's name on it, still. Uh, you know, was put out by Bob Walter, and he's taken the foundation in a really interesting way. Not only has he stayed involved in the arts, in in uh, anthropology, and a lot of the areas that Campbell, you know, cultural mythology, but he's been really trying to have the foundation be a part of a lot of the, a lot of the things that are going on in uh, neurobiology, you know, biology and neuropsychology and uh, consciousness studies, and all the emerging things that are happening. The new research that. Uh, um, has moved some of the cave discoveries back to Indonesia. We have a cave discovery that's 40,000 uh, years old now that brings the locus of these Paleolithic caves that I've written about out of southern Europe and into Indonesia as far as the oldest developed Paleolithic. Is it, it's cave art? Cave or art, remains? yeah. Oh. Art, yeah. And it's cave art that's on the, on, on the level of the stuff in southern Europe, in Altamira or Lascaux or Chauvet, hmm. it's as complex. It looks like it could be done by the same people, but it's in Indonesia, and it's uh, 40,000 years old. Chauvet is 26,000. Right. And so this, uh, you know, it's a big find because before the notion was is that the, the, the beginning of mythological and symbolic consciousness on a kind of complex level 
it was ultimately European. Right. <clears throat> and we could claim this it kind of Eurocentric. It would have to be. Yeah, and this this shows that it, that's absolutely not the case, right? So it's sending shockwaves through. But uh, Campbell Foundation contacted me, and they said that there's... I just talked to the guy on the phone last night. He's an amazing dude, this guy Roger. Um, I'll let's say his first name. Uh, but he's a collector of Indonesian art, and he's... Uh, it was a businessman that was in Indonesia 20 years ago uh, on a business trip, and a friend of his, I guess, invited him to um, come check out this kind of local ceremony, and it just kind of blew his mind, and he stopped doing what he was doing, and then I don't know where he gets his money, but he just started bouncing around. I guess there's 17, what, 17,000 islands in yeah. Indonesia? Mm -hmm. So he just started bouncing around to these different tribes and, and participating and watching ceremonies, and then he kind of accidentally started collecting art, um, just on the notion that the stuff was really speaking to him and he doesn't sell it or, you know, put it on the market. He's just a collector. Um, and before you know it, he's, you know, he's trading tobacco for art or chocolate for art or gold for art or art for art. Right. And then he's, he ends up with the, uh, what, what, what I guess is the largest collection of Indonesian tribal art on the planet. No, <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And the, the collection has been on display in New York and it's been in Paris and a few other places. And, now there's a they're doing a book about it, but he, the guy didn't want the book to be um, just another kind of ethnographic piece about you know here's the the work of these people from this island and here's the work of these people from this island. He had the guy's just a businessman; he doesn't have a, any, any official training, but he said that he's noticed that the art you know coalesces around these four or five different themes: uh, symbols of power and protection, symbols of ancestors, uh, so, you know what I mean, and so on and so forth. There's uh, four or five of them. And he thinks they have a kind of Jungian or Campbellian, if I can make that word up, uh, attachment to where you can you can look at this art and see not only are there themes that stretch out across all of the islands, um, but that connect to these larger human themes and the human story. He thought, wouldn't it be cool to display the art in the book this way um, instead of just another ethnographic piece? Um, and so he contacted the Campbell Foundation and asked them if there was anybody they that that could that they had in mind that could write the forward to the book um, that could basically give the academic justification for doing this, right? To provide right. the sort of for this organization, yeah. Well, for this guy and for the people who are or you know presenting the art in you know in this kind of thematic right. context, right. they want they want the kind of you know framework right. academically for justification to do so. Right, right. So I talked to the guy last night, and, and the art the, the book should be uh, if all goes well should be out September of 2015. Cool. And they're uh, they're bringing it out at this festival in Paris or at this um, exhibit that I guess is the largest exhibit of tribal art on the planet. Wow! So I'm stoked on it. And, uh, you, you know, you get a trip to Indonesia or Paris. Or well, anywhere? well, yeah. Well, <laughs> I was going to talk to you about that and see if I'm safe over there. I want to hear about your trips over there. <laughs> I've only been to Indonesia once. It was a long time ago. It was uh, probably the late '80s. Did you go with Stanley or no? Okay. No, I went on my own. I was. Um, it was the. It was the end of my first trip to Asia. So I'd been in in India, Nepal, Thailand, Malaysia, and then I went to Sumatra. But oh, wow. yeah, I was in Sumatra three months, but it was only Sumatra. I never went to Java or Lombok or Bali or anywhere. Uh, I'd like to. I, I really You've enjoy it. You've been to Papua it. New Guinea? Never been to Papua New Guinea, no. Wow. Uh, but that, well, Irian Jaya is the Indonesian mm -hmm. side and Papua New Guinea is the mm -hmm. other side. Um, but yeah, that's pretty rambunctious over there. That's where you got to be really careful. 
it's a funny thing, you know. I talked to the guy last night, and he goes, "What do you know about Indi- you know, Indonesian art?" And I said, "Absolutely fucking nothing, right?" And he kind of chuckled. You're hired. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're the guy we're looking for, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, it's one of those things. Uh, I remember a J.J. Abrams story. I think he was being interviewed on Howard Stern, and he was talking about the beginning, the creation of that that god awful show Lost. And now it makes sense when you hear this anecdote. And he said he was eating dinner with the head of ABC, and uh, one one Friday evening, and the guy was saying. You know that show Survivors is getting great ratings. What the you know we I'd love to have a, a show about an island that's kind of Survivor like, but that was like a drama. It was dramatized. Mm-hmm. And he goes, "You got anything like that? Because if you had anything like that, I you know I'd I'd produce something like that." So he said, "I'm sitting with the head of a major network who's basically saying, I got a hundred million dollars to throw at a project about an island, you know, with people on it, and there's some kind of competitive vibe to it, but it's a fictional thing. Do you have anything like that? And I just said, yeah, I've been working on something like that. Yeah. Bullshit. Right? Yeah, total bullshit. He had nothing. And the guy goes, oh, bring it in Monday. You know, and once, so he goes, I went home and just came up with the idea for the show uh, yeah. to satisfy this thing I'd already committed myself to. So I felt That's why the, it was so half-baked. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, the, yeah, that explains why the show was terrible. So hopefully my execution will be a little better. But... uh you know, it was one of those things where, I mean, I trusted in Bob Walter's recommendation and thought, we can do this, man. And he's going to edit the thing. And uh, I have a, another few anthropologist friends who've worked in the area who right. are going to look over, you know, my stuff before I send it out. Well, so. and also it sounds to me like the project isn't for you to explain what this art is. The project is to explain why it's legitimate to be organizing it thematically rather than ethnographically. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm stoked on that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. All this talk about islands is making me want to play you some of my favorite island music, but I'm going to keep it down to one song. This is Hanapepe Dream by Taj Mahal and the Hula Blues Band. See if you can imagine yourself under a palm tree swinging in a hammock while you listen to this. Thank you. 
a really interesting place. The, the language is great. It's, um, you know, because there's so many distinct cultures in this, you know, artificially created country, they created an artificial language, mm-hmm. uh, Bahasa Indonesia, which is, um, you know, in other countries like India also has hundreds of languages, right. but they superimpose English over. So everyone has English as the common language. <clears throat> But in Indonesia, they created this artificial language. And it's really funny because it has, it's got no future or past. So right. if you're talking about tomorrow, you say, I eat tomorrow. Or tomorrow I visit my mother. Uh, you know, next week I visit my mother. But right. you, there's no I'm going to visit yeah, you know, okay. or I will visit. Uh, past, there's no, I, you know, I visited. No, it's yesterday I visit my mother. Last week I visit my mother. Hmm. Uh, also with adjectives, like there are adjectives, but there's no modifier of the adjectives. So uh, gado, for example, means uh, spicy. Hmm. And so very spicy is gado gado. And if you want to like, oh, really off the charts, gado gado gado. Gado gado gado. Some so, poor stuttering guy is just getting really <laughs> spicy food and he's like, fuck. Again. Yeah. <laughs> It's on fire. <laughs> that's, that's funny. You know, one of the things that I've, uh, you know, this this cave discovery, just to go off on Indonesia for a second, this cave discovery is important because not only does it push, um, you know, the dating of these this cave art, which I've written about as being so important in uh, not only for artistic discussions, but in, you know, everything about mythological consciousness and so forth. Um, it pushes it into this region. Um, but there's a guy named Cressman who was an anthropologist. I don't know if you've heard him here at U of O and, uh, when in the fifties and, and earlier and Cressman had a theory that he went out and found a lot of evidence for, but he was absolutely scoffed at at the time that, uh, there were peoples in, uh, in the, the plateau in the, the plains of South of Southern Oregon, Southeast Oregon, uh, as early as 15,000 years ago. Now, this blew the theory out of the water that there was, um, you know, pr- prior to that, the notion of where the first peoples came was through this melting in the ice, you know, through Alaska, yeah. right? There's Very straight. Yeah. yeah. And there was, a, there was a, a section of it that melted so people could come through, right? But it wasn't open 15,000 years ago. So people, so the, the thought was there's no way there could have been people down here that long ago because they couldn't have gotten through the ice. Um, but... Recent discoveries have shown that that's absolutely the case in a place called the uh, Paisley Cave, I believe, in southern Oregon. So it's it's of note for a couple of reasons. One is it's the oldest confirmed date of human habitation in the Americas, and it's here in southern Oregon. Yeah. Really? Yeah, absolutely, 15,000. I'm I'm aware of there's a place in Chile that I yeah think. it was twenty something right yeah so yeah. I heard this claim and I'm glad that we're talking about it on the air because I heard this claim and with that backup and the first thing I thought of was this spot in Chile yeah and the reason that might be important and I could be talking totally out of my ass but one of the theories of where those people came from was um, on boats from Indonesia and south and then up. Right, and so there's a connection point there that makes whatever's going on artistically in this area forty thousand years ago super important. So I'm excited to dig into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that stuff with the ancient navigation and how these guys could look at the, you know, the ripples on the surface of the ocean and know uh, what's happening weather-wise three days from now. Yeah. And I mean, just Remarkable. incredible stuff. Yeah, yeah, really interesting stuff. You know, talking about the Bering Strait and then cave art and all this stuff. One of the things that that really gets me is how 
how quick we are to assume that the oldest shit we found is the oldest shit there is. Yeah, yeah. It drives me crazy, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, especially in light of, you know, we're talking geological time yeah. here, tens of thousands of years, and the sea level has changed so many different times and, and quite extremely. And so, you know, virtually everyone was living along the shore 50,000 years right. ago. And that shore now is 200 feet underwater. Right. So, we're, you know, there's probably amazing cave art in caves that are 200 feet under you know sea level right now but nobody's ever going to find it yeah and may have been washed out or something washed out i mean you know there's no bones there's no you know whatever you know yeah you're always picking through what's left absolutely i mean you know forget about forty thousand years ago i mean i'm a lit professor and i'm teaching i just taught a lit class and we just read beowulf and even with like anglo-saxon poetry all we can say which is 1000 a.d uh, we can't even say Beowulf is the best example of Anglo-Saxon poetry. Right. We can say it's the only one we that somebody chose to wrote, write down and not burn. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. have no idea if it was a piece of shit in its time, right, or how it compared right. to any other Anglo-Saxon poetry or how much more there were. That We have like four or five examples. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a strange, strange how, how you know, and the, the corollary to that is how the things that are made of durable material are assumed to have been the first things made, right? Yeah. Oh, these spear points are the oldest human artifacts. Or, well, what about the hammocks? You know, right. what about the the baby carriers and the clothing? And you know, there could have been all sorts of really interesting stuff artistically long before any of this cave art or this guy Cressman found a cache of sandals and that's what uh, clued him into uh, oh. these wool hand woven sandals to, and that's what they were able to date to 15,000 BC so yeah you're absolutely right but very fragile stuff if they yeah. hadn't been tucked away in this cave they would have been eroded by now and this you said this was southeastern Oregon yeah it's called the Paisley cave right <clears throat> interesting I was going to ask you a question real quick because the reason I, I study this stuff um is because I'm looking for some, um, you know, discernibly modern human behavior before it was differentiated by culture to the point of creating these divisions of identity in the world, right? Where people are locked into these American versus French versus Italian versus Christian, Jew, Muslim. And if I can, if we can go early enough, but still have a modern sensibility, a modern mythological and artistic sensibility, we might be able to find these kind of pristine um mythological tropes and 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 ideas and and algorithms for expanding consciousness that unite people because they really relate they're they're kind of everybody's mythic heritage these these caves um but i was thinking about it recently and i was thinking it's it's a weird impulse to try to think if i can if I can find a very old justification like the oldest justification for my behavior i can possibly find will really justify my behavior. Do you know what I'm saying? It's a very weird impulse to say the the best way to justify uh, a human impulse is to try to ground it in some ancient human behavior or better yet, you know, ape behavior. And cuz we you've dealt with this a lot, people saying we can justify warfare yeah. by what chimps do or we can justify polyamory by what bonobos do, right? Those both there's problems with each of those kind that those ways of thinking, right? So how do you how do you deal with that? Do you understand the question? Yeah. It's kind of convoluted. But. Yeah, no, I, I see what you, I mean, essentially you're talking about, you know, what is the value of nat- natural behavior, right? And how do you even define it? And then if you have defined it, what applicable value does it have? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's a complicated thing because in some ways 
it's completely illegitimate, mm-hmm. and in other ways it's not. I'm, I'm writing a section in this book I'm working on now called The Naturalistic Fallacy Fallacy. Right. You know, where it's like, you know, you read this all the time. Oh, it's the natural. The is doesn't equate with ought, you know. Right, right. <clears throat> um, well, but sometimes it does. Yeah. You know, I mean, the shape of the foot, how the foot is shaped tells you something about how a shoe ought to be designed. Yeah. If you're not designing shoes based upon the shape and, you know, mechanics of a foot, then you're going to end up with some pretty fucked up shoes and yeah, some yeah. fucked up feet. So, you know, there there's definitely... Uh, applicability now as to how you do that and in in what cases it's more or less applicable you know that's case by case basis Uh, i think there's a trajectory there's Mm -hmm. like a momentum uh to behavior um that is uh you know it's very hard to find in in the dna yeah in most cases um and isn't even really worth looking for, I would say. Well, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go, no, go ahead. What got me thinking about this is in this literature class I've been t- uh, teaching, we read these ancient epics, and we've read Gilgamesh, and we read the Mahabharata, and we read uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and um, Beowulf and a few others, um, Ovid. And, you know, as a lit professor, there's so many things you can do with a class, and um, some of it has to be... Um, or should be to give some kind of historical context uh, to help the, the, the student understand uh, what this text, uh, what the author might have been trying to express and how it might have been received in it to its original audience. But I think there's, um, that's only part of the issue, right? The, a piece of art doesn't belong to its original audience or its author. If it endures through time, the associations it, it creates in new contexts and for new audiences are just as valid. Right, so what a modern reading of Shakespeare, uh, whether or not its original audience would have had any kind of similar reading, is is an interesting question. But also, it doesn't really delegitimize the modern reading. And so then I start. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, people apply that to constitutional law and the Bible mm-hmm. all the time, right? Is it a living document or not? Yeah. Okay. That's that, that's that exact question, right? And so then, in, in when you take that over to biology versus epigenetics. Right. I mean, there, there may be even if you can prove that at one point in our species, right, if we went into this highly moralized family, you know, family unit structure in order to protect family lines or all of the different geopolitical realities um, that caused us to create these patriarchal family units, that doesn't really say anything about our biology. That just says something about what people did for in response to a particular circumstance in time, right? And you're trying to go further back. Right. Well, it does say something about our biology. What it says is that our biology is extremely adaptable. Adaptable, yes. Right. And so you get a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the critiques of Sex at Dawn Mm -hmm. were based around this idea that there is no natural human sexual behavior. And, you know, these people, meaning us, are saying that... uh, you know, promiscuity is the natural human sexual behavior. But no, look at the anthropology. It shows you this wide range of behaviors. There is no one natural behavior, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. The only thing that's natural is extreme adaptability. Okay, true to a limited extent, and this gets to the crux of what you're talking about, I think. It's true to a very limited extent that, yes, we are extremely adaptable, just like I can wear shoes that are not the right size for my feet. Right. Um, but 
and I can even walk in them, but my fucking feet will bleed and right. I'll get blisters, <laughs> yeah. you know? There's a there's a price to the adaptability, yeah. and the more um, the adaptation requires us to diverge from what I would consider like a, you know, like our natural range. And I use this word natural advisedly. It's mm-hmm. a very problematic mm-hmm. word. But, you know, from our, our sort of natural range, the more trauma is... Uh, you know, results from that, right? right? Whether it's behavioral. Uh, I mean, you know, one of the things people talk about is, um, you know, adapt- the, the, the physical way of arguing with about this is, is sort of obvious, right? With feet bleeding and all that. But what about behavior? What about stress? Yeah. Right? Like, oh, you know, we're, we're really adaptable. We can work hard. We can do that. Yeah, but you freak out. The body starts to fall apart. Not everybody's body, but right. a lot of them do. So clearly in terms of sexuality, I, you know, there's a trajectory that we argued and I think demonstrated pretty well in Sex at Dawn. And when we diverge from that, uh, it results in stress. It doesn't mean, you know, the same amount of stress for everyone. And it doesn't even mean that the stress of diverging from it is greater than the stress of dealing with, you know, living a polyamorous life in a monogamous world. Right, you know? right. So there's no, I think what people got wrong is they, they said, well, you know, you're arguing that that's more natural, therefore you're arguing that that's what everyone should do. Yeah. And that's the step that we that's never not took. not at all you were saying, yeah. No, not at all. But so. that this can't be considered aberrant is the statement you were trying to make with the book. Right, behavior. and and that this there isn't are deviant behavior. Right, it's not deviant. Yeah, yeah. Well, it it's it deviates from contemporary norms. Yes, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't deviate from the biological, you know, the inherited biological tendencies of our species. Not at all. And but, it plays out wherever and however it can, whether that's looking at porn or fantasies or you know whatever. Or selling people jugs of your own piss. <laughs> As yeah, one of my jugs. I'm not sure she pisses into jugs. You know, she's congratulations, a, she's a lady. Congratulations, by the way. Sorry about that. Uh, congratulations, by the way, on your 19th pr- uh, printing, I guess, of Sex and Dawn. Eight, 18th, 18th, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. That's thank awesome, you. man. Well, it is, but it doesn't mean what it used to mean. No, no, because it used to. You know, they used to order up. 50,000 copies mm-hmm. at once because they were all being printed. You know, they'd have to retool the machines and you right, know, back right. in the in the day. Now, since it's all digital, they can, you know, they order up 7,500 copies. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I think that's pretty much what they order up for us. Um, so, yeah, it's the 18th printing, but what's that mean? I don't know. Looks, sounds nice. Yeah, it sounds yeah. great. <laughs> I'll brag about it. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was big enough that, that the editor from Harper sent me an email saying congratulations yeah all right great and it's a hey will you guys pay for an ad now (laughs) yeah one ad (laughs) never huh not an ad oh my god that's amazing yeah don't get me started i think this shakes out uh in a different way to something i've been wanting to ask you about we uh we saw i saw you when uh when duncan was in town and that was a great it was a great appearance when he was here at the Hawthorne Theater. It was fun, yeah. I uh, I hung out. I got to I stuck around after and chatted with him for a minute outside, and it was great. There was this line of like hippies 
um, that were like, it was like Jesus. They were like bringing offerings to him and then like explaining the offering. Like this guy had jam. It was actually really sweet. And he was like, I made this jam for you, man. And I would listen to your podcast while I made this jam. And then the next lady would like, and he'd be like, thanks, man. You know, and, uh, and then this next lady, I wove this blanket for you. And, oh, wow. That's a beautiful thing. You know, and then like, like one after the next, they would just bring these in and present these gifts to him. He's like, I don't know how I'm going to get this all on the plane, man. Like it was fucking hilarious, but uh, there was a, I do a terrible impression of the guy. But the impre- the thing I wanted to ask you about is the discussion you guys were having. It seems like um, in the futurist community, there's like these two visions. There's the uh, the the utopian and the dystopian. The one is you know goes along the lines of the stuff Duncan's talking about. That isn't it great how we're all going to be cyborgs soon, and uh, or or another version of that is this. Um, you know that 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 guy that's doing the resource-based uh, you know uh, structure of, of uh, society, the dude that has the thing in the end of Zeitgeist, that little utopian society that they're trying to build. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I gotta no. find that guy's name for you. Like he's created this vision of a of a resource-based economy that can create this kind of social utopia, uh, and he's trying to build one of them. And so there's these. There's these visions of whatever's coming that have it have it as a kind of utopian transformation that we're finally going to innovate ourselves into um, out of these problems, right? And then there's the other view that says we're fucked, everything's going to collapse. <laughs> yeah, right. And I, and like yeah. you guys were kind of having that discussion, and it seems like he was more on the side of, you know, we're we're going to be able to innovate our way into some pretty in- interesting places here. And and then the other side of that is technology is what's causing a lot. Yeah. of these difficulties and so how do you what do you think about those two i mean have you run into that you've been to a lot of these futurist conferences i've never been to a futurist oh, conference you go to I've, paleo conferences but that's a whole different thing i i've spent a lot of time with joe and duncan though yeah. which is like a futurist conference yeah, sometimes. Shit. <laughs> no i mean that's the thing when i'm hanging out with those two i'm i'm the i'm the bummer i'm the turd in the punch bowl okay because i think they're full of shit and on that on that point i say that with Utmost you guys respect have gone round and, and round on this, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, you know, Duncan's all excited about his Oculus Rift, and I think it's a silly waste of time and money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I I saw a thing the other day uh, on Twitter. There's some, you know, some scientist um, was excited because they'd found they think they found a planet finally that may be habitable and wow. and my first response was great let's go fuck that one up too yeah you know <laughs> and i don't I let's mean, send mcconaughey as we should do <laughs> exactly. first and foremost <laughs> but i don't see any evidence that we're getting our shit together so yeah. why where, you know where, the trajectories go in the opposite direction right you right know? there's more and more carbon in the air there's more and more plastic in the ocean there's you know, more and more, uh, you know, half the world's dying of starvation. The other half's diabetic. I mean, like, wh- wh- where do these people see hope in that? I, I don't know. And I feel bad. I was talking to a guy today, actually, uh, 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 a guy who's just written a book about secularism. And um, we got into this question of progress. And, mm-hmm. and I was, you know, I was sort of bumming him out a little bit. And I said to him, like, look, man, I don't. You're asking me these questions, I'm answering them, right? Yeah. But I also know you've got two young kids. Right. Because I knew, because he told me, like, I got to leave at 20 after to go pick up my kids. And so I know he's got little kids. Yeah. I don't like talking to people who've got kids about how I think the future is really fucked. Right. Because, you know, I envy them their optimism. Their optimism. And I don't really want to, you know, squelch that. 
But if you're asking me, my honest opinion, my mm-hmm. honest opinion is the trajectory of human society is definitely uh, demonstrably negative. We are self-deluded. We are um, led by lunatics and idiots. Yeah. And, well, when you're led by lunatics and idiots, you're not going in the right direction. We're not. The whole thing is set up, you know, and this is what this book's about, so I don't want to get into it too much. But, you know, the the trajectory of the the Leviathan is leading us away from where we want to be, which is egalitarianism, which is, you know, a non-consumerist um, model mm-hmm. of happiness and and. You know the good life, conspicuous and, consumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, come on, we never get there. It's it's so obvious that we're running on a wheel, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting about this particular historical moment, I may be wrong, but I think that there's sort of a critical mass of people who who recognize that, who look, who are like, "Fuck, this is not gonna work." Yeah, you've been saying that we're, you know, a cure for cancer is right around the corner. Since Nixon. Right. And I, I don't remember how many tens of billions of dollars have gone into that cesspool. And more people are getting cancer. Yeah. And <laughs> and you, the treatment is essentially the same as it was in 1975. Mm-hmm. Right? And nobody so, will take Rick Simpson oil seriously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the one I mean, thing that, that actually that's one of the few, few areas there yeah. where there is some hope that people are starting to look at stuff like that. But, I mean, you know, that's, that's bucking the tide of the entire yeah. economy. Yeah, so. yeah, for sure. So yeah, I mean, I just don't see it, man. You know, the World War One was the war to end all wars. You know, and here we are with our Nobel Peace Prize winning president blowing people up all over the world with no <laughs> fucking legal justification at all. You know, you're bumming me out, man. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Let's talk about it's clowns. A fucking downer. Yeah. No, you know, I uh, there's a philosopher Slavoj Zizek. You know him? Yeah, I've met him actually. Oh, what do you think of him? I, I think he's he's a jokester. <laughs> you think he's full of shit, <laughs> like a lot of people do. <laughs> I mean, I, I spoke with him actually. At uh, I mean, his I favorite topic is Slavoj Zizek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was at I was at um, when Sex at Dawn came out. I was mm-hmm. invited to speak at the uh, Festival of Dangerous Ideas oh, nice. at the Sydney Opera House. That's he, cool. He was there. Wow. Um, yeah, there were some really interesting people it. there. Yeah. It was it was a great. I love that thing because because their whole f- vibe was. You know, go out there and say whatever the fuck you want to say. Use whatever words you want to use. Go for it. And we want people to be uncomfortable. We we want controversy. You know, and then I go to TED and it's like, oh, you can't say (laughs) that. You can't say people are rich in the audience. exactly. Uh, Especially because they are. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Don't mention torture. (laughs) I mean, I've been thinking about this, this. I don't know if this is even related. To, oh wait, you wanted to say something about the about Slivik. well Zizek. Yeah, I just wonder. Well, what was your conversation with him? Well, it was him talking about something that nobody else could understand what the fuck he was talking about. But and then he gave his talk, you know, his big presentation, which was again, I, you know, I know he talked about Barbie. He talked, you know, a lot mm-hmm. of pop culture references that everybody found <clears throat> endearing and amusing. But I couldn't tell you what the hell he was talking about. He says uh, he says a lot of things. I've been getting into him lately just because he's so weird and he washes his socks in his dishwasher and shit like that, you know. So he's just a character, and so and he tells you about it. Yeah, and he tells you about it, right? Which, like I said, it's his favorite topic is telling you how weird he is, which is again a, a, a brand of some sort, yeah. right? Um, yeah, the crazy philosopher. I talked yeah. to uh, Peter Bogosian recently about him, and he goes, "I can't stand that guy because he intentionally obfuscates, right? He, he kind right. of." He kind of is really hard to understand, and it seems like he's doing that on purpose. And yeah. 
I think a lot of what he says is like that. A lot of what he, I can understand, I don't agree with. And every once in a while, he says something that I really think is great. And he was talking about our understanding of nature. And he says, you know, ecology is another ideology. And as such, it has some limitations. And we have this idea that nature is this perfect, pristine, um, self-contained system that we have now somehow messed up. And that's, um, that's a, a secular version of the fall. Right, and that nature is not um, this wonderful, balanced, pristine system. Nature is actually a series of profound catastrophes. That, you know, our our number one fuel source, oil, um, the oil reserves in the ground, were got there. If you think about it for a second, as as the the results of profound catastrophe, right? Land formation itself, um, you know, the result of volcanic eruptions. If you think about the big the big bang, right, or just the universe itself, it's a place of of uh, infinite catastrophe of things exploding and smashing <laughs> into each other and, and collapsing into themselves. And so, <sighs> humans' adaptability is the thing that um, is our sort of response to that. That that it's the kind of absurd hubris of humanity to, in the face of of all that still find a way through it and forward. And so I don't, you know, I think the, you know, right when I start to get too pessimistic, I swing back over to the optimist side because I think we, we've always found a way and man, and at some point we won't, and then we'll just go extinct. Like many of the species we've run off the planet. Well, there's several things that, that come up with mm -hmm. me when you talk about that. One is, uh, his characterization of nature as a series of catastrophes. <clears throat> Yeah, there are catastrophes, mm -hmm. you know. But if you got to go back to the Big Bang in your in your sequence, you know, yeah. that's a pretty big uh, that's a big leap canvas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, Earth. Yeah, okay. The last major catastrophe on the Earth, I think, was probably the happened in Sumatra. As a matter of fact, mm -hmm. the Toba mm -hmm. eruption yeah. seventy thousand years ago that yeah. wiped out most um humans in fact yeah. probably down to about four thousand breeding uh pairs yeah wow i didn't um, realize it was that low yeah it was uh, the whole dna bottleneck uh, at seventy thousand years ago is due to the toba eruption um but you know seventy thousand years is a long fucking time ago and yeah. so the ones who survived had it pretty good because they were essentially on an unoccupied planet and our species can eat just about anything right. so um you know, th that vision of nature as this essentially tragic realm to me is, uh, well, that's one of the things that I'm really grappling with in this book because that's Hobbes, that's Dawkins, that's Pinker. That's an appeal to authority to protect you from, from the dangers yeah, of nature. Only, only the, the, you know, so a communist view would say only the collective can do it. And then the authoritarian view would say only, only the Only Jesus can do, can it. do it. Only the, you know, the U.S. military can do yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. So it's part of the, gotcha. part of the sale is to say, you know, to oversell the present. Mm. Hey, this is great. We've almost got cancer. You're going to live forever. Yeah, the Oculus yeah. Rift, you're going to be able to fuck <laughs> Selma Hayek. Everything's amazing just around the corner. Hold on just a little more, right? Mm. We've been hearing that forever. Yeah. It used to be salvation came after you die. Now it's salvation's coming. Just around you, the corner. You know, corner. it's just around the corner. We're almost there. It's morning in America. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Uh and then the other side is, you know, and the alternatives are terrifying because right. the alternative is nasty, brutish, and short. Yeah. The alternative is, 
you know, nature, the bloody struggle for survival. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Every fucking BBC special you see, I, I remember seeing this thing. There's a, it opens up, there's a, a seal frolicking in a wave, yeah. you know, and it's like, do-do-do, little yeah. flutes and stuff playing, and then you hear Attenborough or whoever it is yeah. saying, you know, <laughs> Yes, but but uh, soon enough, you know the evil. Anyway, and, uh, and you see the shadow in the wave, and yeah. it's a great white shark yeah, coming up. Yeah. It comes up and it hits the seal, and the seal goes up in the air, yeah. and then they slow it down. And they actually say in the narration, "We've slowed this down forty times, mm. so you can see and and you can see the terror in this little seal's face, and, yeah. <laughs> and the shark's." teeth get unsheathed as it's like waiting for the seal to fall and, and then it's crunching and the tail's flapping and it's like oh that's so bad right and that's the bloody you know eternal struggle for survival right, according right. to Richard Attenborough so I'm watching this and I'm thinking um wait a minute right how how old do these seals live so I look up the harbor seal thing they live to be 30 right all right so you got this harbor seal I've seen a lot of seals. You've seen a lot of yeah. seals. What are they doing? They're lying around on a hot rock most yeah. of the time. Yeah. Or they're frolicking in the water with their friends eating fresh fish. Yeah. They don't look very stressed to me. Uh-uh. Right? So here's this seal. Let's say, you know, he's not old. Let's say he's 25. Okay? He's, he's like my age. Right? He's like an older middle-aged seal. Right. And he meets his fucking maker. Right? right. Okay. First of all... That death without the slow mo, yeah, took about four seconds yeah. or, or, or less, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Secondly, it's well demonstrated that when an animal is, you know, attacked by a predator, uh, endorphins are released. Yeah. So not only is it, you know, a very swift death, it's a painless. Relatively, death. yeah, painless, yeah. Right. So look at that animal's life. 25 years. And it's probably never even thought about death until it was actually starting to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Although we can't get away from that. We are human. So we'll always think about it. But, right. But, I mean, you look at, look at the deal that seal got, right? Yeah. 25 years, a good years, hanging out with his buddies, eating good food, yeah. getting laid a lot, yeah. you know, in good shape, healthy, happy, whatever. And a four-second, probably painless, probably high out of his brain, death versus what we have. Yeah. I'll take what that fucking seals have. Yeah, it's not a bad deal at all when you put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all about framing, you know. So anyway. I try to lay around and just fart and laugh at things too. Good on you, man. Yeah, but my old lady doesn't like it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm married a walrus. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> hey, I'm working on another book too, man, that I, I think you might be interested in that's with the Campbell Foundation, and that's about uh, – I have a friend who's an author in town named Dami Shoemaker, and we were talking about um, Dami's trans, uh, 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 gender transition. And Dami was saying that uh, she came across Campbell's book um, when she was young and uh, had this notion of, you know, when people go into sexual reassignment or just gender transition or just coming into gender awareness, um, that they tend to lose touch with their spirituality because most of the traditional spiritual models are just based on this kind of binary man-woman thing. And especially if it's a Judeo-Christian one, you're now, mm. you know, being gay is anathema, being trans is really bad in the Christian community, right? And not not to all Christians, but, but generally speaking. Um, and so Campbell provided a way for her to kind of turn her gender identity quest into her own hero's journey. Right, and I w- and then I've talked to a few other people that have had that same 
experience where they use the work of Young specifically and, and Campbell second to kind of create a model for their own spiritual journey um, to kind of, you know, ride shotgun to their uh, gender identity, to the, their own coming to their own gender awareness. And so I thought this is a pretty cool idea because I, I don't think any, I've looked and no one's written about this yet. And um, not only do I think it's an interesting book, but I think there's a treatment model there for somebody who's actually working with people in the trans community, mm. right? Because, th- I mean, this this notion of going, right, stepping away from, uh, you know, the, the stages of the hero's journey, right, of, of stepping out from, you know, and it's, it's really just the cycle of somebody coming into their own adolescence and adulthood, but um, going into the underworld, into some place that's separate from the culture, um, coming to some realization, facing these struggles, and then um, coming into a new awareness of yourself, and then the reemergence and reintegration back into the culture, right? That, that those steps and the sequence of them, um, are, are vital, I think, and I think there's a lot of opportunity there for, uh, for like I said, for a treatment model. So that's the other piece I'm working on. Interesting. So that's going to be a book. Yeah, I think so. I'm going to start it as an article and float it out there and see if people just think I'm full of shit and don't care. And if there's some interest in it, then I'll try to turn it into a book. Yeah, cool. That's a good idea. Um, w- last time we talked, at the very end, you mentioned something about your mother. Yeah. We hadn't spoken about your mother. We'd spoken about your father, yeah. right? Your mother was adopted by Chinese gangsters or some shit like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So she's got a crazy story, Because you, you teased the audience there. <laughs> I, w- I want to make sure we get to that. And we I don't gotta, have to talk about it right away. If you're no, no. We should. We never got to a lot of the mafia stuff, in the, in, or did we? I forgot. Well, we <clears> talked <throat> about your dad okay. and, and you, like, growing up and the, the bikers. And, you know, like, there was a cool biker who sort of took you under his wing. And I remember, yeah, it's been about, a while, yeah, but I remember that stuff. We talked about him growing up. He dated Bugsy Siegel daughter for a while and yeah his father worked with luciano and right. Meyer lansky and those guys in new york and uh but um yeah my mom she's a trip i got another story about my kids that i want to tell you guys oh, before right. we get out of here does this too. involve come on donuts it, uh, of course not on donuts this time on people it's fantastic uh you know <laughs> do you have, do you have a, a signed waiver for <laughs> yeah i was gonna say <laughs> i made a few calls and i think it's all right for me to tell the story we'll see um, well, go so, ahead. You tell, yeah. tell us the kid story. Then. The kid story first. We'll get All right. to your mom. All after. right. So, man, you know, so those of you that have listened to the show, you know, the 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 one story I told the first time we talked was about the the cupcakes, right? The erotic bakery. Oh, that's right. It wasn't donuts. And yeah. my daughter getting the you know the black penis one, and the guy asking that they want come on them. And again, they were younger then, and I was trying to be the good dad, and they had asked to go do this thing, and so it turned into this funny kind of nightmare, uh, damaging story that I'm still paying for therapy for. Um, but then, uh, recently, right. I've been doing these readings around town, right. I've either been at, you know, going to them and reading or just going and trying to support people at them. And, um, like I said, Portland, the Portland writers are doing some amazing fucking work and it's all, I mean, most of it, when you, if you go to one of these readings and there's 12 readers, eight of them will be fantastic. Right. I mean, so it's really a high level of stuff. And it's all across the boards. It's usually people writing about traumatic events from their own life and their childhood, but some there's some fiction and other kinds of stuff. And, um, and you know, there'll be one or two, um, usually if there's 12 people in the reading, there'll be one or two that have a little sexual content in them or something. But it's, it's pretty PG-13 for the most part, <clears throat> besides one of them. And so, uh, you know, my kids are 20, my son's 20, and my daughter's 17 now. So they're older now, but still, they're you know, they're my kids. 
and I had been wanting to bring them to a reading. And so there was this one recently here in town, and it was at uh, Common Grounds Coffee House over on uh, on Hawthorne. I thought, oh, you guys should come out and check this reading out, right? Celeste and I have been going to him. Uh, a friend of mine's playing music in the middle, and I know a few of the readers, so it should be great. So, you know, we, we got there, and we the only table was uh, right in the front row, so we're sitting right in the front row. And so they introduced the first reader, and the first girl goes up, and uh, and she's, like, barely clothed. You could see through what she had on, and uh, you could tell she was a dancer. And she goes into this story about how... Um, about when she works in the adult film industry, right? And, like, the first line of the thing is, right, so after the guy comes all over my face, right, I look to the girl next to me and start talking to her. And so then she's in this conversation with the girl, and as she's in the conversation with the girl, she's every few lines she's going, can I can I wipe this jizz off my face? And the girl's going, no, hang on a second, we got to get this and this. Um, and then the whole, and then the next part of the story has her in this room where she's tied up on a thing and there's all these people around, you know, uh, around her jerking off. I mean, it was... Uh, it was hardcore, right? Her story, right? And and then and we're right in the front row, and all I can see is the back of my kids' heads watching, this, right? <laughs> and then the next, and I go, okay, well, we're out of the gate with the sex story, right? The next one will be cool. So the next person goes up. I met this guy online and met him in a hotel, and he's fucking me in the ass, right? I mean, and, right? And so that story is just fucking filthy, 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 right? Um, next lady gets up, right? Her story, filthy affair she's having with her husband meets the guy at a hotel right filthy 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 right you know and and so every story one after the next and it wasn't there was nothing that said this was going to be an erotica there was nothing in any of the promo material night or anything yeah and it was at this coffee shop right um there was only one story i mean it was just jizz 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 (laughs) we were just drank we were swimming in it and uh we were sick with it man i mean it was unbelievable and there was one story that wasn't about just getting covered in cum (laughs) And and it was written by this lady that was talking about how fucking terrible kids are, right? Because they stop you from going out and getting covered and come. Yeah, cum. yeah. The story was about how she had met this guy and thought he was great and wanted to fucking take him and go on these trips and fuck him and do all this stuff. But he had these fucking kids and, and she was jealous of him and didn't want to deal with it, right? So that was the one PG story of the night was about how it's terrible to have children because they ruin your sex life. That's and, rough, man. Yeah, so then we went out for Thai food. <laughs> afterwards <laughs> would your kids say um yeah the funny thing is is i was more traumatized by it than anything i mean we're talking about teenagers with the internet so they've been watching two girls one cup and shit like that for a while yeah and so my daughter actually said she thought it was brave of the people to, to stand up and tell those stories which i right. thought was cool yeah. yeah young people have to be taught those things like shame and and stuff you know what i mean like i, I think in a lot of ways I, they were actually super cool with it yeah they weren't giggling they, they weren't overwhelmed they weren't embarrassed yeah i felt a little weird because again i didn't know that what was a, you know was up and i thought here we go again right with me and ron mm-hmm. jeremy dad i didn't want him to get the wrong idea that that's what i do is just run around and watch erotica right it was kind of aberrant reading. did i tell you i introduced ron jeremy to my mother yeah how'd that yeah. go again oh that was it this taping in in la he was there and are they still dating or (laughs) this is a one night stand (laughs) yeah yeah talking about people telling stories traumatic stories um you ever listen to the moth yeah do you hear the one with run dmc Mm -mm. it's it's one of the best things i've ever heard man I, i i encourage everybody listening to this to Go to the moth. I think it's the moth dot com or mm-hmm. whatever, and and uh, look for the Run DMC story. It's incredible. I, I mean, I won't tell the story, but essentially, what it was, the dude 
super intelligent guy, very sensitive, deep guy, uh, was suicidal. He mm-hmm. was at the top of the world, you know, gold records, best-selling rap mm-hmm. artist ever, and, you know, just like had at the top of every mountain he could see, and he was incredibly depressed, suicidal, thinking about how he was going to kill himself. Um, and one day he was like, okay, this is today's the day. You know, I've been planning this. Today's wow. the day. And he was in a taxi or, well, not a taxi. He was in a limo, I guess. Mm-hmm. And the driver said, uh, hey, what, do you, what music do you want to listen to? And he said, I don't care. Just the radio, whatever. And the guy had on a radio station and um, uh, Sarah McLaughlin came on. And it was See, the, that would have sealed the deal for me. <laughs> I would have said, this is a sign to check out. <laughs> well, sure. it was the album Angel. <laughs> oh, wow. And he heard the song, and he said, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Who is that? It was Sarah McLaughlin. He went out and bought Sarah McLaughlin wow. all her records. And for the next several years, he would listen to nothing but Sarah McLaughlin. A black man admitted this. <laughs> the Run DMZ. So they're like, you know, on the way to a show. Holy shit. And, you know, he in the green room, yeah. he's insisting that they only play Sarah McLaughlin <laughs> before they go before they go out on stage wow. man. it's so funny yeah so anyway that i mean cheryl I, crow's got to be pissed <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing yeah it's it's a hell of a story and that's just how it starts and then he meets her at a party and they you know it, it's a real interesting story i don't know what the hell that has to do with your your kids and and awkward yeah, we're stories. Off the rails Tra- traumatic one. stories hey we do a series at the school um called the mouths of others and we it's just, it's so that's the name of it now it's the one you came to last the year the mouths of others yeah it sounds kind of it sounds kind of dirty i think i saw that movie <laughs> yeah right no part seven is the one you saw i think we're <laughs> we're doing the original and uh uh it's a literary series at my school and we that's where we bring all the authors and filmmakers and stuff to the school and that was the one you were at last year with Kimberly Dark and stuff. And uh, this year we've had that guy, Sean Davis. We just had a filmmaker, Alana Soul, who re- made a documentary uh, called On Paper Wings, which is about the Japanese balloon bombs that landed in the United States during World War II. And, uh, I mean, these are amazing. And uh, one of them actually landed in Blade Land. They landed as far as Michigan and all over the West Coast. They launched thousands of these oh, paper balloon uh, like just hot air balloons, like made out of paper with sandbags on them. The Japanese discovered the jet stream, and then launched these bombs, hoping to ignite forest fires all over the West Coast. It was kind of a last ditch effort in the war, and most of these things just landed in the middle of nowhere, landed in the ocean or whatever. And the ones that did land normally didn't explode, or if they did, nobody was around. But the government kept it a secret. One landed in Bly, Oregon, this little town. And uh, there was this church group, a pastor and six kids uh, that went, you know, they were out on a hike and they went up to the thing and uh, sure enough, it exploded and killed them all. So at the time it was, and I think um, up until, I mean, because 9-11 doesn't count, right? And Pearl Harbor wasn't on mainland. So it's the only time a foreign nation has attacked American citizens on the mainland U.S. and actually killed U.S. citizens. And that was in Southern Oregon. And so she made a film about that. Uh, we have um, Dorothy Allison coming, who wrote Bastard Out of Carolina, a, uh, a poet named Jimmy Santiago Baca, who's a prison poet. But we got a guy coming next uh, next term, and I, I just spaced his name, but he's, he wrote a book. He's a Portlander. He wrote a book called Dear Marcus. And I don't know if you've heard of the book. And I get, the guy's name just flew out of my head, but the book is called Dear Marcus. And this guy is an African-American guy, and he was uh, shot 
when he was a teenager, he was just walking down the street and a random bullet hit him and uh, paralyzed him. Right. And so he wrote a book called Dear Marcus, which is basically a, an extended letter to the person. He just made the name Marcus up to the person who shot him. And that's that's what the book he talks about his life before he was shot and after and kind of all the changes that have happened to him since this random event. The person was never caught. Right. There was no we don't know. You know there was no nothing ever happened with it. But he wrote a book about the experience and it's wow. fucking an amazing book. It's heart wrenching, but it's really good. Right, and it's his letter. It's this open letter to the person who did this to him. Wow. Yeah, it's phenomenal. That's crazy. I never heard about those, those balloons before. Yeah, the balloons are amazing, man. They launched thousands of them, and they, they were so uh, they, they were made of paper, and they had the sandbags around them, and so as, uh, as the air would expand or contract, and depending on, you know, they wanted, uh, one of the bags would drop off to make, it, uh, to make the thing lighter, you know what I mean? And so they were kind of timed, uh, they had enough sandbags on it to where to where when they finally got over uh, land on the U.S., um, the last sandbag would drop, and then the next time the thing would deflate, the the weight of the bomb would carry it to the ground. Did you ever hear that story about the guy in Los Angeles who attached a bunch of helium balloons to a lawn chair? Yeah, yeah, and actually made it up into the jet stream, didn't you? That's what I heard. <laughs> he did. Yeah, he was yeah. drifting out over the fucking Pacific Ocean. Yeah, that's amazing. Didn't they make a movie about that? They were, well, I don't know if there was a movie, but there was a New Yorker article okay. about him by George Plimpton. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for people who don't know the story, what, what the dude, uh, the way I remember is the guy always wanted to be a pilot, but his eyesight wasn't good enough. He couldn't go to you know flight school or whatever. And uh, I guess he lived with his mother or somewhere in L.A., and one day he's hanging out, drinking a beer, and he gets this idea, goes to the Army Navy, what do they call those, the, those Army Surplus store, surplus, yeah. buys a bunch of uh, helium weather balloons uh-huh. and a tank of helium, fills them up, <laughs> attaches them to his lawn chair, which is all weighted down. You reminded me of with the sandbags. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he sits in the lawn chair, and he's got uh, a sandwich, a six-pack of beer, and um, a pellet gun. Uh, because the idea is to shoot the balloons when he wants to come down, and he like off. I'm glad he thought it through. You know, it's yeah, the small details, right? And he and he's got a rope, and he's tied to his truck, so he's like it's a hundred foot rope or something. Yeah. So he'll only go up a hundred feet, feet, and he'll yeah. be good. So he he floats up, you know, offloads the sandbags, floats up, sitting up there a hundred feet up above his neighborhood. You know, like feeling cool sitting like, in his lawn chair. Why am I limited to this? Yeah, yeah this yeah. is fantastic. And so, he, and it's not a windy day; it's a calm day. So untethered. He figures, <laughs> he figures yeah, I'll I'll undo the rope and I'll just float around the neighborhood a little bit, and then I'll you know come down. So he unties the rope, and within five seconds, he's at like ten thousand feet. Jesus. He just like shoots way up, yeah, immediately, and it's so fast and so unstable that he's just trying to hold on, yeah. right? Doesn't and he's terrified. And so there he is. He's 10,000 feet in the air, and uh, it's freezing cold. Yeah. And there's not a lot of oxygen, and he's floating around and doesn't know, you know, what the hell. He's afraid to shoot the balloons yeah, now. Yeah, he's plummet now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and he starts floating out over the Pacific. And uh, so a KLL, a KAL flight is coming in, Korean Airlines <laughs> flight is coming in, and they, and they see him. And, of course, there's, on LAX, they see this blip on the radar, but yeah. they think it's a flock of birds or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And the pilot sees this dude, and the pilot radios into LAX, and he yeah. says, there's a guy up here in a, in a lawn chair <laughs> yeah, <we got laughs> with that. a gun in his hand. Yeah, hey. 
Wow. So they send. Uh, Good thing he wasn't black, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They got him down quick. Tase him. <laughs> yeah. Well, they send. Uh, so they send oh a helicopter gosh. up, like a, a you know a national guard or a coast guard helicopter. It's one of those big double rotor things. Um, no, no. First, they send a regular helicopter. Yeah. And but but every time the helicopter gets close to the guy, the wind like destabilizes him yeah. and blows him away and all that. So there's no way they can get to him, right, to to save him. So then they send up one of those big double double uh, blade helicopters, yeah. and what that one does is it gets up above him, yeah, and it's high enough above him that it's not disturbing the um, the balloons too much, and uh, they lower a line down, and a, and a dude goes down, and there's another dude uh, sitting in like a sniper in the door of the helicopter because they know as soon as they grab this guy off the chair, the chair is going to go straight up and they don't want it to get in the rotors. Oh, so he's got to shoot, so he's the, got to shoot the balloons like pop, 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 pop before it you know gets up and gets in the rotors. <laughs> so they'll all go down. Yeah, so they rescue the dude. And, and it uh, worked. You got all the balloons. It worked. That's they, amazing. Yeah, they rescued him, got him down and... Uh, you know, it was a. He was briefly a celebrity in L.A. And you know, they they, they charge him. With they all did. The, they charge him with flying in restricted airspace. <laughs> nice. But you know, I think he paid a fine or whatever. And thank God for the Patriot Act. <laughs> but then, uh, then like a year or two dividends. later, he he committed suicide. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Uh, yeah. The story in the New Yorker is amazing. I don't remember what it's called, but if people want to read it, just uh, email me. I'll find How it. How did he do that? How did he kill himself? It's yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a good. I feel like question. that's relevant, you yeah, know. I, I, I don't think it involved flight, but if then he goes out in some shitty way. It's kind of anticlimactic, right? I, like, I think he just like sleeping pills or shit like yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I mean. But uh, but then you know, Japanese being Japanese, some Japanese guy heard this story and decided I'm not going to be outdone by this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this dude was like. All right, he he got a like an all weather suit and like a super you know perfectly designed lawn chair and, and got all this yeah shit right up. He's take it up and, and, and it was like on television and the sponsored by Red Bull and shit yeah yeah <laughs> they couldn't stop him there was like no law that they could like stop this dude from doing it so he went up and he was on uh, radar but he went way up he was like at thirty thousand feet or Jesus something. he didn't pass out well he was he had oxygen okay. and he had all this shit. Um, and last anyone had any word from him, he was over Siberia and then <laughs> that was it. Oh really? Like yeah. they never heard from he him. He drifted towards Siberia and then the Japanese radar lost him and he's never been it. heard from again. No. Wow. Yeah. He, I thought you were going to say he landed and then killed himself a year later too. And I thought, wow, that's <laughs> no, amazing. He's the probably Russians, still up there floating around. The Russians got a hold of him, right? Or, or nothing. Or nothing. Or he just froze and died, you know? Yeah, that's a bad idea, man. <laughs> yeah, I think lawn chairs are meant to be on a lawn. Yeah. You know? <laughs> back, right. back to nature, the natural argument. Or maybe it's, like, you know, if you have an extremely shallow pool, put, right, just put it in there and sit <laughs> like in it. Like a that's kiddie kinda, pool. Yeah, so yeah that's kind of Yeah, cool. we're back to you being a walrus. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us about your crazy mother. Yeah, so my mom, man, that's oh, a, that's a good segue. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. no. <laughs> How dare you? Oh, that bitch was nuts, man. She was. Uh, 
So her mother died giving birth to her, and she, oh, uh, Irish Catholic family, and uh, her father was an alcoholic, and she and he died pretty soon after that. So she then went into the orphanages in New York. This is back in like the you know she was born in 1940, and so you know this so was post war. Yeah, this was all you know. So <laughs> this is Oliver territory. You know what I mean? Yeah. The orphanages were bad news. Yeah. And Catholic orphanage, and then she was adopted out of the orphanage by a um, by a Chinese family, and I knew next to she refused to really talk about any of that. Um, I, what I could piece together were a couple of things: is that uh, the 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 guy was highly abusive, both physically and sexually, and um, and that he was this high ranking member of the Chinese mafia, right? And that, but she wouldn't really, you know, in New York. Right. And uh, and wouldn't really talk about it much. And I don't know how much she knew, but, you know, when she turned 18, she uh, joined the Air Force and became a nurse in the Air Force because she just wanted to get out of the house. Right. Right. And it was the only thing she could think of doing um, or the best thing she could think of doing. And that's how she ended up. And then when she came back from there, uh, she um, she had become friends with this Jamaican guy when she was in the in the Air Force and then basically became adopted by his family. And so when I was growing up, all of my cousins and aunts and uncles and, and grandma and grandpa were all Jamaican people. Like, I literally would go to these family functions with really? 37 Jamaican people and my mom and my dad and I and <laughs> eating curried goat and shit. Yeah, I mean, it was, and, and I was probably 12 or 13 before I figured it out. I, like, it just came, it just dawned on me one day. Like, at all, I looked around and I was like, were you married once before? Or <laughs> Why yeah. are all these people brown? Right. right, but it for for most of my life it didn't. It just they were just my family. I didn't even think about it. But um she met my dad, she was a prison guard in Rikers Island. Right. And uh and he was a prisoner in Rikers Island, so that's where they met. And he had gone in, I guess, for I think I said last time that he had taken the heat for a murder that he didn't do, but one of his higher one of his bosses had done and so they put him in there for like three years for this and then got him out. Right? right, and then he just said, "Don't talk and don't roll over, and we'll get you out." And right. then, uh, and that's when they met. But we'll get you married too. Yeah, yeah, right. We'll get uh, you a date. But uh, I remember once. Um, so she was a pretty tough woman. So she wasn't a very nurturing person. You know what I mean? She had a real difficult life, and uh, ended up. And they, so let me take that back. Um, she wasn't very nurturing with me, but she uh, she ended up as a hospice nurse, and so she spent the last twenty years of her life as a hospice nurse in Nevada. Um, and was, I mean, had like distinguished down there. She won the nurse of the year a couple of times down there in the state and got a big award from the governor and, um, ran a bunch of camps for kids with cancer. But, uh, so she had this outpouring of compassion kind of for the world, but she couldn't stand me. And I mean, you know me, man, what's not to love? Um, yeah. You're, you're an only child? Uh, well, yes, for her, from her. My dad had right. the kids in other marriages, but right. I was her only child. I think... I think she didn't really want to have a kid. She she had difficulties with me from the time I was born. I remember when I was a kid, one of the lines I've I've told people before, she would tell me um, that she had five miscarriages before having me and that God was trying to tell her something and she should have listened to him. And, and I remember at the time not even knowing what a miscarriage was. And right. I remember feeling like, oh, that's probably going to bum me out. 20 <laughs> when years from now when I, I learned what the out. fuck that was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but but in a way, as shitty as that is to say to a person, especially your child, I think she was actually right. I think she was on to something. I think her body was telling her, you're not, you don't have the mother instinct. You don't have the, the ability to actually rear a child. Um, so really don't. Mm. It was rejecting the child over and over again. Right. And finally it was like, fuck it, okay, have it your way. But I think she probably didn't 
she probably shouldn't have been married either. I think she saw me as keeping her tethered to my dad, and she didn't like my dad because he was an abusive fuck. He never really right. stopped acting that way. But we went back to Chinatown. We went back to New York when I was like 16, and this is a crazy story. Um, a couple of funny things happened there, but um, she was taking us back through her old neighborhood and stuff and took us to this, you know, and this and New York's so funny, or at least it used to be because you could leave a spot and come back 25 years later and the exact same people are there on the exact same corner and running the exact same corner store and whatever. It's a little different now. Um, So we went to this Chinese restaurant in Chinatown that she used to go to and um, we came in and I remember the manager made this big, he saw my mom and made this big fuss. Now it was weird because she hadn't been in Chinatown since she was probably 17, 18 years old, but the guy recognized her and kind of made this big deal and gave us the special table in the back. And she was trying to not, not make it a fuss, but we ate and everything. And then when it came time to pay, um, the, uh, the waiter was like, uh, you know, you don't have to pay. Like he would refuse to take our money. And my dad felt weird about it. And so he just put like a 50 or a hundred, whatever on the table and we left. Um, and then we were down, uh, started walking down the street, and then we just hear behind us this, you know, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, right? And we turned around, and the manager of the place is coming out of the restaurant with the waiter kind of by the ear, kind of holding him up by the ear, and the guy's got the money in his other hand, and he, like, brings it up and makes the guy, like, give it to my mom, and then they both were just, like, bowing, saying, so sorry, so sorry, so sorry, and my mom was like, seriously, man, it's not that big an issue. She was real embarrassed, and... But I remember, I mean, it was a bizarre experience because, I mean, she was just the adopted daughter of this guy and she hadn't been there in 20-something years and still, I mean, had there was this, this immediate recognition. Why would a Chinese gangster adopt a white kid? Uh, 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 yeah, a white Irish Catholic girl. Yeah. It's a fascinating question. I had absolutely no idea. And they were, you never met them? No, yeah, never, never even knew their names. Knew next to nothing about them. Really? Never seen pictures. Really? Yeah. Isn't that something? That is something. And you were with your mom like mm-hmm. a long Mostly time. Mostly growing up, yeah. But she uh, she really would only talk about her time. Uh, I mean, you know, I've basically told you about as much as I know. She would only talk about her life from like 18 years old forward with this Mayo family, with this uh, Jamaican family that she threw roots down with. That's but bizarre. any of that early stuff, she just, it was inaccessible. Wow fascinating person but just tortured you she know didn't I mean? speak chinese at all um not that i was aware of no which is fascinating you think you you think that she would have had to have learned it yeah, yeah. wow yeah so she's died yeah she died she died uh last year and i found out on facebook uh found out on facebook my brother died too <laughs> i wasn't close to him either he's a real nutcase really yeah do you feel you know having this sort of uh you know i don't know what to call it like i'm thinking of casilda because mm-hmm. you know casilda's mother tried to abort her mm. and so there's some similarity in terms of you know coming into the world yeah yeah and sort of uh you know not wanted or not you know not planned for or whatever um and i sometimes you know i i don't know how to say this is is there something liberating in this in in you know, once you've come to terms with, you know, being uh, in the world without those connections, is, yeah. is there a liberation in that or is it just like fucked? No, I think there is. That's a really good question. I mean, it's it's I think about it during the holidays a lot. You know right. what I mean? When I think about the you know, it, it 
uh, it frees me from a lot of obligation. It frees me from a lot of uh, people who are close to their parents, the financial and emotional devastation of having to watch them get older and die. You know, it freed, right. it freed me. And so in a real, in a real narcissistic way, uh, it freed me of a lot of those, of those problems. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, from an early age, my mom made it clear that she didn't really want me around. And at first it was kind of devastating, but then you're right. At another point it becomes kind of liberating because right. you go, okay, right. feelings mutual. And then once you kind of get your, your sea legs under, under you and learn how to, how to support yourself and learn how to start making relevant, emotional, you know, intimate connections with other people and making your own family, then yeah, I mean, People that have family of origins that are toxic, I, I recommend getting away from them, you know, and not just staying there because you think you're supposed to. Yeah. You know, there, there's a world full of people that are there to interact with you and not to tear you apart. The other thing it does, though, is for a long time, um, it made me feel I kind of had to earn my place in the room or apologize for my existence. You know, I was deeply insecure, even when you and I for, were first becoming friends. Uh I, I just had this feeling of insecurity around other people because it just gives you this sense of, um, I, I don't know how I want to put it. You just lose that sense of self-awareness, that sense of deep mm-hmm. connection and, and not, not a sense of superiority to people around you, but just a sense that you belong in the room, you belong on the right. planet. And when you don't come, when, when you're immediately told and when you're first in the world that you weren't, you're not wanted in the world. Right. And I'm, yeah. then it, it kind of creates this deep epigenetic sense of, yeah yeah i just did a an episode of uh talking out my ass Uh the the other day and the theme was unconditional love Mm -hmm. and it was about how um you know some kids get it and some kids don't and you know everybody deserves it so it's not a question of who deserved it and who didn't it's just like you know, in 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 this fucked up world that we've created, and this gets back to the whole utopian dystopian mm-hmm. kind of <clears throat> perspective. But you know, we've created this world where there are a lot of kids who aren't getting loved. Yeah, Bruce a Perry's lot. done some amazing work on this, Doctor Bruce Perry. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you know, in a hunter gatherer context, there's virtually nobody. No mm-hmm. kids are not loved. Mm-hmm. You know, even if even if you know, transform, you know, uh, what's the word, uh, transfer your situation into a hunter-gatherer context. Uh-huh. You know, the woman who gave birth to you is not into it, not really into being a mother, whatever. Yeah. There are lots of other women around who would breastfeed you, would pick you up. Uh-huh. Anytime you cry, whatever adult's closest picks you up and, oh, don't worry. And there's no ignoring the kid crying. There's no let him cry it out. You know, there's none of that kind of, hmm. those parenting techniques yeah. are sick. And they're, uh, you know, th- that's the way a sick society replicates itself, yeah. replicates the trauma. And, uh, you know, so it's, uh, in terms of evolution, it's a novel situation to have kids growing up without that kind of support. Yeah, in fact, in our culture, um, if anything, we're incentivized uh, to fear our own children. I mean, we, I don't know if you know this, the United States, which is the only uh, industrialized country that still gives people under the age of 18 life in prison without the possibility of parole. We have uh, over 2,225 people in jail for life without parole who got that sentence when they were under 18. The rest of the world has 12 combined. We were actually summoned to Geneva to answer for, for this, what what the rest of the world sees as an absolute crime against humanity. Why are you locking kids up? And this there's really this notion out there and whether you want to talk about Ferguson or a lot of other places where we have to 
where we're told over and over again that we have to be afraid of teenagers. We have to be afraid of our children because they're going to kill us and rob us and rape us and steal from us. And this is not to suggest that there aren't dangerous people out there, but this idea of, of right, telling people over and over again to fear young people, right, as opposed to doing things to try to, like hunter-gatherer societies do, to actually initially initiate them yeah. right into the society. The other And so the people that we're not afraid of... Um, as far as young people, um, the other thing we're doing to them is basically making them indentured financial servants for the rest of their life. With because, this financial aid. Yeah, because yeah. you tell them when they're 16, 17, you got to pick what you're going to be for the rest of your life. And I mean, and their, their frontal lobe isn't even developed yet. And so they go get some bachelor's degree in psychology, you know, or, or whatever. And they don't even know what the hell they are or what they want to do. And they go 60, yeah. 80 grand into debt to get that bachelor's degree and then they're working at a Starbucks because they, you know what I mean? They're like figuring out how am I going to pay my student loans back because we force them to make lifelong choices that have these profound financial comp, you know, uh, well, we force them to make the, the choice and we refuse to pay for the education, right? You know, Northern Europe, even in, in Southern Europe and Spain, it's free. Mm hmm. It's free. You want a degree in psychology? Great. Go get a degree Go in school. psychology. Not only is the school free, or nearly free, depending where you go, yeah. but you get a living stipend as well. Wow. Because the society sees that an educated populace will in some way enrich the society, so it's just investing in our kids. That's Same way we, you know, in Europe, European societies invest in healthcare for people. Mm -hmm. Well, we'd rather have a healthy populace. You know, right. in the end, that's a better deal for everybody. You know, America is a brutal horrible fucking country it, it is really amazing to see it, what's happening and you know I, i've always felt that there was something really deeply sick in american culture mm -hmm. and the selfishness and you know the i got mine fuck you kind yeah. of attitude but it's really accelerating recently it's i mean this is a bad you know these are bad times right yeah. with ferguson and new york and and now the torture report it's like, wow, this is a heavy, heavy couple of weeks we're in right here. All of it's rooted in fear, man, and otherizing. And, you know, we uh, there's a Nietzsche quote where he says something like, is it better to out-monster the monster or to silently be devoured? And I'm mm -hmm. not sure those are the only two options, you know? I mean, like, to present this idea that, um, you know, you have to either become more barbaric than this perceived monster out there or just acquiesce and be destroyed... Um, you know the, the the this in America we're not we're not accustomed to this idea of how do we confront um, our monsters without um, trying to kill them or letting them kill us, but how can we somehow integrate them? And we were just talking to my class about this in in mythological tradition, right? You can confront the dragon and kill it; it might kill you. Or you might be able to kill it. Or if you play your cards right, you'll reconcile with the dragon and then you'll be able to fly around on the back of the fucking thing. You know what I mean? And so that seems like to be, uh, you know, to confront our monsters rather than rather than trying to slay them. Um, it's what Jung talked about, our shadow self. You can't kill yeah. your shadow. You have to integrate it somehow, right? And that involves a kind of confrontation. I mean, this is this is across the board. This is what Luke Skywalker figuring out when he sees his own face and Darth Vader... Right, it's it, you can't kill that thing, that shadow. You have to integrate it somehow. And yeah. um, there's a guy I was telling—I don't know if I was telling you about—but I met this guy at a party who um, 
found, he came and started talking to me and, he, and asked me, he goes, oh, you're on, you're on that podcast, aren't you? And I said, yeah, occasionally. And he said, well, I got a guest for you guys. And I think I told you, it's the guy that's the, the host of that Finding Bigfoot show. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is like the, I guess, the number one show on Animal Planet. And he mm-hmm. said, that, that guy would love to come on your show. And I said, I'll tell Chris, I think he'd like to interview him because this guy's this major international Bigfoot hunter. And the first question I asked him, not the guy, but my, the, the dude that I met at this party, um, he said he's known this guy since they were teenagers. I said, does he, does he really believe in this animal? That's the first question I have. Do you think this guy really believes in the existence of this thing or is he just fucking around for a TV show? And he goes, no, he absolutely believes in the existence of it and i find that fascinating um did you see herzog's um herzog didn't make it but that film he's in the incident at loch ness no oh it's great it's a film that he's in and it's uh it's a it's the premise is it's a documentary he's making about the loch ness monster and the whole time he's saying um you know i i don't believe this thing's there but i don't care like that the the my the point is not whether the monster exists or not. He's fascinated right. with obsession, right. and he's fa- and in this case, he's fascinated in what is it like to live next to this lake with the belief in this thing that it's there, right? Like the belief that people have in the existence of this monster, whether or not it's there or not. And and then the film kind of takes a turn that if you watch it, I don't want to say. No, I'll definitely check yeah, it out. It's I, fascinating. I love her yeah, too. but I, do, you, do you see what I mean? I mean, the Americans think that like the the only option is to go kill the monster, and we'll be able to kill our way or or uh, buy our way or, or medicate, or medicate our, way. our way to some safe place, to a world that's safe, to a yeah. world without enemies, to a well, world that, without danger, you're to absolutely a world without right. death. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It's a refusal to accept the presence of danger in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's, and it's ironic because the country is, you know, the, the sort of mythological foundation of the country is all about home with the brave. Right. Right. That we're the ones who face the danger. We're the ones who, you know, beat the Nazis. We're the greatest generation. Mm-hmm. We're the, you know, the innovators and blah, blah, blah. Right. But you look at the way the country behaves, it's running around like a frightened little child. A feral it, toddler, yeah. Yeah, it's it's absolutely out of control and, and doing a lot of fucking damage as we as we go. Um what were we talking about? Uh, oh, I was just reading an article recently that, that ties into this exactly uh, about, um, I think it's called, like, What a Shaman Sees in a Mental Hospital. Yeah, yeah, that was a great piece. That? I saw you posted that. I posted yeah, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so interesting. You know, and, you know, the, the, it's not the only um, piece that talks about this, but how exactly what you were saying in, in traditional societies, uh, shamanic societies, someone who... Uh, we would describe as having a psychotic break is seen as someone who is being called to shamanize, Mm -hmm. right? And so the society sort of embraces that person and supports that person because this person has the capacity to move between worlds and to bring information from one world to the other so they can help us if we help them get through this passage, through this very difficult period that they've got to go through. Um, yeah. Whereas in our society, what do we do? We yeah. stigmatize. We medicate out of existence and put them off in a padded room somewhere. Sweep it under the rug and act like it's not there. There yeah. was that really moving moment in that in that article where uh, who was the African shaman? It's Maladome. Uh, Maladome Somme, right? And he he the first time he went to visit a friend in a mental hospital and he saw all these people there mm-hmm. and he saw the spirits around yeah. the people and he said, "What a waste this is." Like all this richness that the society is just rejecting. It's locking up. Yeah. 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 Unbelievable. 
Yeah, it's remarkable. He, uh, you know, he's an interesting guy because he's written. I'm sure you know his background, but he's written some books yeah. about African shamanism, and they and there's some there's some discussion that the the kind of uh, tradition he practices is not been syncretized and is some of the oldest religious practices on the planet. Um, uh, I think the oldest religions uh, that we found in terms of what we've been discovered in an unbroken way have been uh, Aboriginal. Uh, in Maori, but this this particular kind of African shamanism he practices is some of the purest, earliest of the spiritual traditions. That there you go in. again with the earlier is better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, who knows what the, who knows what that fucking means? But it's <laughs> fascinating. He's a really cool dude. Yeah, my yeah. friend Kent yeah, Frazier, a DJ, got me into uh, Maladoma Somi's work. Yeah, and I've been reading it a lot lately as well. Yeah, interesting. I think Stanley's hung out with him. I think that he, wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah, they're in the same circles. Well, listen, man, it's been uh, 90 minutes. We, oh, it goes God. by fast. I feel like we just sat down. Nobody's listening at this point anyway. <laughs> well, not, not at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny, fun. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're sitting here, you know, talking into a machine. Yeah. So no one is listening. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can say whatever we want. Right, you right. Know, unless I at take, the moment, right. Unless I take that card and put it over there and do all these other things, it never No one goes will anywhere. ever hear this, yeah. Right, right. Let me say one more thing to your listeners. A lot of folks were really supportive of me when I uh, was trying to get down to CIS and, uh, CIIS and start my PhD program. And there's a lot of listeners that gave financial support. Somebody gave me a plane ticket. Oh, no kidding. Uh, some miles. People gave a lot of just emotional support. Folks that had been at the school or knew people down there, right. contacts and stuff. So, uh, I want to shout out to a lot of your listeners. There's, uh, I don't want to start naming names because I'll forget. Right. But uh, folks have been great, and there's even listeners that I uh, argue with on Facebook now, which is also a lot of fun. Really, we tend to get at each other's throats. I'm convinced that Facebook is the goddamn devil. I mean, there's something great about it, and there's something that that is so wonderful that how it facilitates. Um, a sharing of information and connecting with the old girl from high school and blah blah blah. But then I also think it just dumps our, uh, fills our heads with dopamine and adrenaline, and uh, it just makes us yeah. want to attack people and stab them in the face. Well, I, I see. I mean, I, I very rarely actually look on Facebook, but when I do, I often see you engaged in some sort of ongoing. <laughs> I, I fancy myself sure. the savior of displaced peoples. Uh, you know, it's just the white savior bullshit. You know, I thing, swoop in to tell everyone yeah. about the black experience and about right. feminism yeah, and about the, the black all these people other need things. You to tell yeah, us all these other it, things yeah. I have no goddamn idea about. <laughs> I'm there to set the record straight, right? So I thank everyone for their patience while I make a fool of myself. But it, it is funny. I mean, I've been lucky in a way uh, that my, um, my, my sort of my experience with social media mm-hmm. has come a, about with the book. Yeah. So I never really got into it before the book. I mean, I think I was on Facebook, but something, ever, you know, yeah. whatever. I mean, I like email, be, right. you know, but but Facebook and Twitter, I, I like Twitter. Are you fucking kidding me? A little right. Tweety bird? Yeah. Come on. No way. <laughs> Completely against it. And it was my editor who was like, dude, you really got to get on Twitter. It's, mm-hmm. you know, an important thing for writers. You got to, you know, establish this. A whole new that. thing. Yeah. So I did. And, and, you know, very quickly I'm dealing with, you know, five, 10,000 people, right? Yeah. So the volume of it sort of taught me very quickly not to try to engage. Yeah. With people who are looking for trouble. Right. Because it's such a waste of time. Yeah, yeah, I mean, for sure. You know, and, and you think about it, you don't, if you're at a, you know, 
public presentation, you know, and someone asks a really dumb, you know, mean-spirited question, you're not going to like go up to that person later and say, hey, let's have a drink so I can tell you why you're wrong. Yeah. You're just going to ignore that right, guy and never right. think about him again in your life. Yeah. But if he does it on Facebook, you respond to him, and then you end up wasting all this time corresponding with somebody that isn't worth and then you get locked into this Highlander battle of oh, attrition, you know, where, where people are just hurling insults at one another. It's yeah. the worst. I've seen people that agree with one another on Facebook still go at each other's throats. So yeah. There's just something about the medium uh, as a social experiment that facilitates a lot, but also takes a lot out. You don't get oxytocin released unless you're in the presence of a person. And I think that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. And it, it sort of appeals to people who are... Um, or who consider themselves to be intelligent, whether yeah. they are or not, <laughs> right? You know, and cowards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's great for like giving someone shit who normally you would never say. You know, you wouldn't dare say anything right. to. You know, and I mean, I, I don't know. I get, I get. You can imagine, I get so many weird. I, although I have to say, around the podcast, it's seen, and I, I hesitate to say this because you know I don't want to curse it. But the energy that comes my way through the podcast is almost universally positive yeah. and kind and generous. That's what I mean. My wonderful. interaction with the listeners it's, have been phenomenal. And even yeah. the few arguments I've had on Facebook, of well, like 70% of that's been my fault <laughs> for being a cantankerous douchebag. Yeah, yeah. Cantankerous but, yeah, walrus. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, the people have been fantastic. The people. Listen to me. The people. <laughs> the little people. It's important. It's important for me to thank them. <laughs> the fuck am I? All right, little people. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening uh, to me. Who, you know, you are the walrus. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Cuckoo. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation you want to feel
take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground